Welcome to a special episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Bob Thune, lead pastor of Coram Deo Church, and I'm usually joined on this podcast by my conversation partners, Dusty and Chris and Bethany, and occasionally a guest or two. But this is a special episode of the Wednesday Conversation Commentary, where I want to talk about the question of post-Christian culture. Last month, I was invited to speak at a training event for pastors and ministry leaders throughout our city. The topic for my session was Evangelism in a Post-Christian World. My thesis was fairly straightforward. America is becoming an increasingly post-Christian society, and the church's approach to evangelism needs to adapt accordingly. The primary teaching metaphor I used, borrowed from thinkers like James K. Smith and Charles Taylor, was that of a map. I asked my listeners to imagine a map of Omaha from the year 1982, the year I moved here as a child. I asked them to tell me in what ways such a map would still provide an accurate picture of our city for someone seeking to navigate its streets. As you might imagine, my hearers identified dozens of neighborhoods where a map from 1982 would still provide very accurate data. But then, I asked them to tell me in what ways a map from 1982 would be inadequate for a modern traveler. And they named streets, subdivisions, developments, and whole areas of the city new in the past 40 years that simply would not show up on a map from 1982. My point, of course, was that the same thing is true when mapping the social and spiritual geography of our city and of American culture. There are many ways in which the America of 2023 is quite similar to the America of 1982 or 1962 or 1942. Older approaches to evangelism and gospel proclamation still work in certain ways. However, as culture changes, they work a little less effectively. There are new questions and problems and challenges which older methods of evangelism do not engage at all. And therefore, faithful Christian witness in a post-Christian world will require updating our maps so that we can more accurately proclaim and apply the gospel to the questions and concerns of a post-Christian world. In my talk, I surveyed three basic types of societies, pre-Christian, Christianized, and post-Christian. Let me quickly survey them for you. A pre-Christian society is one where the gospel has not yet influenced the society in a meaningful way. Pre-Christian societies tend to be animistic, spiritualistic, or pagan, in the way most cultures throughout world history have been. You might think of the nature worship among the peoples of the ancient Near East, or of the polytheistic paganism of Greco-Roman society, or of the ancestor worship among Eastern cultures. To say it another way, secularism is a uniquely post-Christian phenomenon. Most pre-Christian societies are spiritualistic or pagan. The second type of society is a Christianized society, and that's a society in which Christianity has made a significant cultural impact and has come to shape the culture in significant ways, even among people who are not self-consciously Christian. A Christianized culture borrows capital from Christianity, even if it doesn't admit that it's doing so. As writers like Tom Holland have shown, this is the reality in what we now call the West. Even our rejection of Christianity is built upon Christian foundations. Finally, a post-Christian society is one in which the culture has moved on from Christianity and 
considers Christianity as something to be moved on from. This is a world where religion is not just a respectable point of view that I may disagree with, but something regressive, or in modern terms, something patriarchal and racist and toxic. Religion, and especially Christianity, is something to be challenged. People are not thinking, maybe I should become a Christian. They're more likely thinking, why would anyone become a Christian? This, I argued, is increasingly the world we find ourselves in. I've personally seen this shift over 25 years of Christian ministry, and modern progressivism is only accelerating the trend. We are living in a post-Christian society, and it's vital for churches to learn how to effectively evangelize and disciple people who have been shaped by such a society. That was my point in my talk to these pastors in our city, and what I've sought to do over 18 years of planting and establishing Cormdale Church is to build a laboratory where we can try and fail and try again to build a model of ministry that does just that. Now, 10 days after delivering my talk on evangelism in a post-Christian world, I came across the 2022 Erasmus Lecture given by Anthony Fisher, the Catholic Archbishop of Sydney, Australia. Fisher challenges my core thesis. At this point, I'm still mostly convinced of what I said, but I admit the matter may not be quite as clean and tidy as I imagined it was. The Erasmus Lecture is an annual event hosted in New York City by the Institute for Religion and Public Life, a Catholic think tank and publishing agency led by former Creighton University professor Rusty Reno. The inaugural Erasmus Lecture took place in 1985, and it's been a yearly ritual since then. The Institute invites a major public intellectual to New York to deliver a scholarly address on some aspect of religion, culture, or public policy. Past speakers have included Pope Benedict, back when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, Wolfhart Pannenberg, Clarence Thomas, and N.T. Wright. Each year's lecture is subsequently printed in First Things magazine, and that's where I came across Anthony Fisher's address. It was printed in the February 2023 issue. The title of the lecture, and hence of the article, poses a question. The West, post or pre-Christian? As the title indicates, Archbishop Fisher wishes to question the claim that the West is post-Christian. I found his reasoning lucid and insightful, and I found his challenge to my thesis thought-provoking. Fisher divides his lecture into three sections under these headings. One, post-Christian? Two, Christian? Three, pre-Christian? You can see how I was intrigued that he's describing the same three type of societies that I was describing, only in reverse order. Fisher's fundamental assertion is that Western society is all three of these at once. Here's the powerful sentence that summarizes his argument. Quote, Many people assume that societies progress in linear fashion from pre-Christian to Christian to post-Christian. I suggest that all three of these descriptions may fit the modern West. End quote. He might as well have said, Bob Thune assumes that societies progress in linear fashion from pre-Christian to Christian to post-Christian. Because that is, in fact, what I assumed in my own lecture. The Archbishop wishes to argue that things are not quite so simple. 
He begins by putting forward the basic evidence that we live in a post-Christian society. He writes, and I quote, In the past decade alone, the proportion of Americans identifying as Christian fell from 75% to 63%, with 3 in 10 now identifying as nuns. The proportion of Christians in Britain, Germany, and Australia declined from around 6 in 10 to below 5 in 10 in the same period, while nuns rose to 4 in 10. Those who do believe and count religion as important in their lives now represent just over half of Americans, a quarter of Canadians, one-fifth of Australians, and one-tenth of Britons, French, and Germans. Religious symbols, voices, and traditions are ever less prominent in the public square, which some call a Babylon, in which believers are exiles or resident aliens. Yes, I've used all three of those metaphors in my preaching and on this podcast. Fisher then makes this insightful observation. In modernity, there are different versions of secularity, secularization, and secularism. Milder versions show respect to people of all religions and none, and enable coexistence and some degree of collaboration between church and state. A more extreme secularism casts aside all settlements between church and state, seeking a comprehensively post-Christian reality. I think that helps to explain why a post-Christian world doesn't feel quite the same to everyone. Generally speaking, the more urban and the more blue state you get, the more comprehensively post-Christian things usually feel. And by contrast, the more rural and the more red state you get, you likely experience a milder version of secularism that still has respect for religion and for the church. Now, at this point in the lecture, Archbishop Fisher asks, quote, is the trend toward irreligion inevitable, irreversible, and complete? End quote. He believes it's not. He points out that Christianity is currently the professed religion of 2.6 billion people worldwide. He also notes that increasing secularization is not the global trend. Though one in six of the world's people have no religious affiliation, he writes, it is projected that by 2060, the ratio will have declined to one in eight. Atheism is in graver danger of extinction than theism. Quoting again from the article, Down the ages, the Christian religion has proven resilient. Religious affiliation and fervor have waxed and waned, but whenever the death of God has been proclaimed and the end of Christianity predicted, revival has been just around the corner. Contemporary Western secularity may prove to be another example of the temporary backsliding that has recurred many times in Christianity's long history. Okay, so maybe we're in a sort of post-Christian, sort of Christian world. But there's no way Western culture could be pre-Christian, is there? Here's how the Archbishop begins the third part of his lecture. Wars, insecurity and poverty fueling mass migration, a precarious world economy staring into a financial abyss, political instability, declining trust in institutions, marriage and family in crisis, high rates of divorce, abortion, infanticide, and suicide, subtle and overt persecution of Christians. Is the year 2022 or 222? It's a good question, he asks. In a surprising twist for a supposedly post-Christian world, we do see neo-paganism on the rise today. 
We see it in the fascination with Eastern Celtic and New Age practices. We see it in the rise of witchcraft and Wicca. And we see it most notably in the way that late modern Western culture mirrors the paganism of the late Roman Empire. Rome, St. Augustine chided, had so many gods that a good Roman citizen could hardly keep track of them all. Fisher summarizes the Roman pantheon under four categories. Private gods, prosperity gods, power gods, and pleasure gods. Think about it. Aren't those exactly the same gods your friends and neighbors worship? So, is the West post-Christian, Christian, or pre-Christian? Yes, says Anthony Fisher. He concludes, None of these descriptions can be applied to the West without qualification. All three are influential, even if one predominates in particular times or places. All three conditions coexist in modernity and compete for the soul of the West. None is yet victor. None is yet victor. That's the line that got me. I often lead and pray and teach as though a post-Christian world is simply a given. But it's helpful to realize that reality may be slightly more complex. I still think the church needs to learn how to minister effectively in a post-Christian world. And I still see my own ministry as making some small contribution toward that goal. But it's interesting to consider that perhaps we live in a society that is pre-Christian, Christian, and post-Christian all at once. We always say that the point of this podcast is to consider how the gospel applies to the questions and issues of everyday life. Or, in an even broader sense, how the gospel applies to the questions and issues of our cultural moment. If Archbishop Fisher is right, if the society we live in is a mashup of post-Christian, Christian, and pre-Christian sensibilities all at once, then how ought we to engage that society with the gospel? What will be required for the church to thrive as it lives out the mission of Jesus in this cultural climate? Anthony Fisher ends his lecture with an attempt to answer that question. It's short, it's compact, it's a sketch rather than a thorough blueprint, but I'd like to read it to you and then offer some comment on three small phrases that I find very provocative. Here now is part of the conclusion to Anthony Fisher's article. In our time, surrounded by the pagan gods of self, wealth, politics, sensuality, and death, and by a secularism aimed at neutering Christianity, we may still pray for a springtime for the church. But if Christianity is to do great things again, it must recover its voice. To survive times like these will require a desecularization and depaganization of institutions and hearts, a clear sighted and fervent faith. Effective telling of the Christian story through preaching, teaching, arts, education, and media. Renewed confidence in the Christian anthropological, soteriological, and ethical vision. An affective liturgical devotional life. Lives of justice, compassion, and holiness. The renewal of supportive communities of family, parish, and school. And above all, the grace of the Holy Spirit, to whom we pray, come. I find that whole list really interesting, but I'd like to focus on just three of those prescriptions for the renewal of the church. First, 
Fisher spoke of renewed confidence in the Christian anthropological, soteriological, and ethical vision. I love the idea of renewed confidence in the things that make Christians distinct. Rather than playing defense, we need to play offense. We have a beautiful vision of human flourishing. We have an understanding of personhood and sexuality and marriage that leads to person-honoring singleness and person-honoring marriage and family. The world around you has no idea what a human being should do because it doesn't know what a human being is. In a world that is tragically confused about what kind of thing a human being is, we need renewed confidence in the Bible's anthropology and the ethics that flow from that anthropology. Second, Fisher mentioned an affective liturgical devotional life. There's a whole sermon in that phrase. I love the hyphenation of liturgical devotional. These are not two separate realms. What God's people do in public worship shapes our private prayer and scripture reading and vice versa. The most missional thing a church can do and the most formative way to shape thoughtful, mature, Bible-saturated Christians is to connect liturgy and devotion so that the public worship liturgy of the church shapes the private devotion of the people and the private devotion of the people fuels and animates public worship. We made a decision years ago at Quorum Deo to pray the Lord's Prayer aloud every Sunday in our worship services, a practice that has always marked more liturgical traditions, but that evangelicals jettisoned over concerns about rote repetition and pharisaical prayers and other such nonsense. I started thinking about the kids in our church and what I wanted to mark them when they grew up. And I decided it would be wonderful if they grew into adults who had the Lord's Prayer committed to memory because they say it 52 times a year. And then in our daily prayer meetings, which we hold every morning at 7 a.m., we use the Lord's Prayer as the template to guide our devotional praying which obviously strengthens our public worship on Sundays. This is just one example of how we're trying to connect liturgy and devotion. I hope gospel-loving Protestant churches will fight for a rich, deep, liturgical devotional life. But Fisher didn't just speak of a liturgical devotional life. He spoke of an affective liturgical devotional life. In other words, one that engages the affections, one that warms the heart, one that moves the soul. The goal of public liturgy and private devotion is to awaken love for God. We must pray that our preaching and our worship and our personal spiritual disciplines awaken zeal and passion for Christ and his kingdom. Late modern Western individualists need to see Christians on fire with love for Christ. Third, Fisher says that Christian renewal requires lives of justice, compassion, and holiness. I long for the day when the Spirit of God awakens us to the unity of these three. Christians who incline toward the political left love talking about justice. Christians who incline toward the political right like talking about holiness and neither tends to have much compassion toward those who disagree. What we need is a deep immersion in Scripture that shows us the unity of all three, 
and a deep work of the Holy Spirit that makes us just, compassionate, and holy people. So are we living in a pre-Christian, a Christian, or a post-Christian world? Anthony Fisher says yes to all three. I'm not entirely convinced, but I'm provoked by his argument. I hope you are too. I'm Bob Thune, and that's this week's Wednesday Conversation Commentary. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. Thank you.